Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Really, really happy that you're here, you know. And you're not even looking at me because he's doing something. <laughs> he's a less. You know, I gotta say, you know, we we're talking upstairs. And I'm like, oh, you're really, you're, you know, you're, you're really funny. I mean, of course he'd be funny, but you know, he's funny, funny. And um, he's also been this, uh, you know, this incredible force in television. Um, today we're happy to have him here for his uh, book, "What Are You Laughing At?" A comprehensive guide to the comedic event. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dan O'Shannon. Thank you. Thank you. I see how it ends. Thank you. You know, I had an abet uh, with a friend of mine today that four people would show up, and she said, "No, you'll get ten. And so, uh, <laughs> so she kind of wins, I guess, because she got closest. Thanks for coming here. Um, Okay, so uh, first of all, I'm going to read like a little bit from this, and I'm going to do this kind of like presentation to give you an overview of kind of what the book's about, so you don't really have to buy it. And then, um, um, although I can't autograph my computer and give it to you, can I? Uh, but uh, but then I'll take questions, and uh, because. I, I understand that, um, you know, I wrote for a lot of TV shows. I wrote for, uh, for Cheers uh, for many years, for four years, and I did uh, five years at Frasier. I was the head writer there and at Cheers for a while. Um, and, uh, and now Modern Family, and I've written some, for some other shows too, and some short things, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I know that a lot of times when I do these sort of things, people want to ask questions, and they're not really about theory or anything, which is perfectly fine. So if you want to ask, when I do questions and answers, if you want to... Oh, that's not. Um, if you want to ask questions, feel free to ask about not just like anything book pertained, but like if you want to ask about writing TV or this or that. I mean, because it's all part and parcel of writing comedy and, and drama and comedy and rules of all that sort of sort of dovetail. So so don't feel like you have to ask theory questions, okay? But I am going to bore you with that for a while. So. This is my book. It's called What Are You Laughing At? I did not design the cover, but it's not bad. Um, and I was, I'm thrilled to have written a book because, you know, I have that prejudice of, you know, a real writer is someone who writes books. You know, it's like TV, 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 ah, TV, TV, a book. So I have one of these. And I'm going to read uh, from the introduction so you know where this uh, book came from a little bit. Um, okay, uh, there's a section in the introduction that's called Who Am I and Why Should You Listen to Me? Okay. Uh, because, I mean, the, the whole thing about this, this book is, it, to me, to answer the question, what makes people laugh? Okay. Who am I and why should you listen to me? Before plunging into a book of this size, you may want to know why you should trust me. Fair enough. For me, the road began in 1970. I was sitting on a gymnasium floor with the rest of my class for a school assembly. There was a man on stage, and he was making us laugh. I have no idea what he was doing. In fact, I have no recollection of the day at all, except for the moment when the man paused. He was waiting for us to catch our collective breath, and he leaned against the microphone stand and mused, there's nothing like the feeling of making people laugh. The click inside of me was deafening. I remember looking around the room to see if anyone else had heard what I heard, or rather connected with it like I had. Amazingly, the remark had passed over them. But they were changed because in that moment I saw them as people, my classmates, but maybe they could also be audience. I was eight years old, and I found my calling. I was going to be funny. And that's a true moment. I mean, obviously, it's all true. But, but there was this idea that, that a guy could come, I'm totally ad-libbing now. I don't know. This guy could, like, <laughs> come out here and, 
The idea that you could make people laugh on purpose to get this sound out of people, to generate this feeling, is such a crazy, powerful, wonderful, loving thing that you could do, and you could do it on purpose. If you step back and forget, forget everything you know, forget about like watching hours of TV or movies or reading funny books or whatever, just, just go back to being a child and think what that must be like. Just have oh, this, this, this crowd of strangers adore you for two seconds. I was a very lonely kid. Um, it's an amazing gift to be able to make people laugh. And this was my first glimpse at the idea that it might be possible for me or for anyone who chose to do that. <laughs> I forgot what happened to me after that. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Thus, okay, I was going to be funny. Thus began the loneliest period of my life. <laughs> I was full of enthusiasm but didn't have the slightest clue how. I'm going to take a break there for a second and say that I'm very lucky that I was not born funny. This might sound like a bit of a paradox because I have this book here. Um, but I was not born funny. And because I was not born funny, I could write this book. People who are born funny, who are naturally funny, who have that charisma, who have that way about them, making their friends and family laugh, they never have to think about what they're doing. They just naturally do it. And people laugh, and then they'll try things. If they work, great, they keep it in the act. If it doesn't work, they throw it out, and their, their persona evolves. A lot of writers are like this, a lot of performers. Okay? They never have to stop and think from scratch, from the blank piece of paper, from the blank stare. How do you go from this? How do you go from nothing to something that makes people laugh? Okay? And I did. I had to think of that. Um, I was full of enthusiasm, but didn't have the slightest clue how to be funny. I just knew what made me laugh. Back then, it was Jerry Lewis. So I became Jerry Lewis. I learned quickly and painfully that there is also nothing like the feeling of not making people laugh. <laughs> I was hideous. You should have known me at the age of everything. Boy! You know, it was just terrible, terrible. I was too young to understand the enormous difference between a character doing comedy in the context of a made-up movie and someone enacting the same behavior in real life. In my teens, I was studying sitcoms on TV, recognizing joke patterns, and I analyzed cartoons. In the library, I found and devoured James Thurber and Robert Benchley, trying hard to duplicate their styles in my writing. The problem, I had no perspective, no point of view. I was simply too young to generate credible material. And let's remember, my audience was mostly other kids, not exactly the kindest crowd. You want to see a group of people that doesn't laugh? Teenage girls. You know who they laugh at? <laughs> their best friends and guys they like. Nobody else on the planet. <laughs> I hate teenage girls. And unencumbered, unencumbered by popularity, I began to discover books about comedy. <laughs> The first, one, <laughs> the first one I ever read was Steve Allen's The Funny Men, written in 1956, a revelation. Around this time, Leonard Maltin was writing about cartoons, comedy teams, Little Rascals, everything I watched on TV that no one wanted to discuss with me on any cr real critical level. I read books by Joe Adamson, George Burns, Milt Josephsberg, Walter Kerr, everything I could lay my hands on. By the way, a book plug, best book about comedy I ever read in my life is a book called The Silent Clowns by Walter Kerr. It's out of print, but if you ever find it, it's about silent screen comedy, and it's like a poem. The it's so beautiful. Okay, at age 19, I started doing stand-up comedy with original material, and I found out that there is indeed nothing like the feeling of making people laugh. This book is the result of what I learned over the next 30 years. You'll notice there's almost no citing of other comedy research in these pages. The contents are based on my observations, first as a stand-up comic, then as a sitcom writer and producer. A lot of credits about me, blah, blah, blah. Written thousands of jokes, blah, blah, blah. Attended thousands of readers. This is just all about me, isn't it? Um, but anyway, that, that's me, and that's kind of where I came from, and that's the starting point. And this book, uh, to me, is sort of the finish line. So if I die tomorrow, I'm perfectly happy, and so, are, uh, so is my ex-wife. Um, uh, but um, the, the sort of goal to understand what makes people laugh is I, I, I sort of call myself in this book a couple of times a comedy detective because I want to understand the laugh. What is it that people are laughing at? And sometimes there, it's not easy. There was a laugh that took me 15 years to figure out. And I'll tell you about it and maybe you can figure it out. Uh, there was an episode I saw years ago when I was a teenager of the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And in the episode, Mary uh, uh, dates her boss, Lou Grant. They've been friends for many seasons and they decide to up it a level and see if they might be romantically inclined. And they have this very awkward date and it culminates in this, this extremely awkward moment on her couch when they lean in for a rather awkward kiss. And as they lean in for the kiss, they both sort of realize the folly of what they're doing and they burst into laughter. And that's when I heard the laugh that didn't quite feel right to me. It was a loud laugh from the studio audience on the soundtrack. A loud shriek of laughter followed by a sudden taper. And I think it was the sudden taper that bothered me because it wasn't this full-bodied laugh that just sort of goes out naturally. It just sort of stopped a little short. It was almost like this kind of like when your car stops too fast. And I sort of 
thought about it. I thought maybe it wasn't as funny as I thought it was, or was it the performance? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't a funny night. I don't know. And I forgot about it for 15 years. Okay, now, 15 years later, I'm running Cheers, and I write an episode in which there's a joke that I put in for Norm. And in the joke, Norm is talking about, you know, he says to the others, okay, guys, you know what? I've had it with being this guy. From now on, this is the day I get off my ass, and I stop drinking beer, and I tell my wife that I love her, and I go and get a job. But he's, he's kidding, and he can't even get through the idea of being a normal, productive citizen without bursting into laughter himself. He just can't do it with a straight face. And he's doing it, and I hear the same laugh from the studio audience I heard 15 years earlier. Loud shriek of laughter, sudden taper. I looked at them, and I looked at Norm, George went, and I understood the laugh I heard on the Mary Tyler Moore show as a teenager. Now when I'm done with this, I'll bring that back, and if anyone wants to take a stab at what was going on, then, then feel free. Now I'm going to bother you with uh, some theory talk and an overview and sort of how I approach all this stuff, and then we'll do Q&A. Uh, Alright, a lot of theorists will... Will you stop that? A lot of, a lot of the, I'm kidding. A lot of theorists will uh, will go on about all comedy is X. They will say all comedy is incongruity, all comedy is superiority, all comedy is aggression, whatever. All comedy is relief. That's Freud. Um, which then is always, always going to be incomplete because then you go to these theorists and you say, does therefore that mean that all X equals comedy is all superiority comedy is all relief comedy is all aggression? The answer is no. And so they have to start looking for those differences, like when is it comedy and when is it not comedy. And so the, the thing to do, I believe, that the approach I took was not to just dissect the material. Okay, there's comedic information, and not just to dissect the uh, material, but look at the whole event, the comedic event. And so I have uh, mapped out what I call the comedic event that, that contains what I believe to be certainly the most sort of more important variables in the things that can play into a laugh. Okay, ta-da. It seems on the on the face of it that a comedic event is very simple. We have the receiver that could be, uh, well, that could be you, me, anybody, these people, whatever, um, and they are going to be the ones who laugh. They come into contact with comedic information. That is that which makes them laugh. Now it could be a formally structured joke. It could be a baby making a face after eating a pickle. It could be just somebody who looks like somebody they know, or a cross between somebody they know and a German Shepherd, or whatever. You know, it, any information that makes them laugh, symbolized in this diagram by a triangle. We'll get into that structure in a minute. They come into contact with comedic information, in this case a linguistic joke that goes like this. The doctor says to Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, I'm afraid you're going to have to stop masturbating. Mr. Jones says, why? And the doctor says, so I can examine you. Okay. Now you've had your reaction, eh, and our receivers all have their reaction. Okay? <laughs> Very inappropriate to tell this joke to children. But uh, so they have their reaction. Now they're all different, perhaps because they have different senses of humor, but beca perhaps because the experience is different for them. So we're going to take a look at what constitutes comedic information. Is it separate from other information? If so, how? But what we're really going to do is zoom in and focus on those arrows, because it's in those arrows that we find all these variables coming into play. This is the event that is happening. Now we're going to start with the, uh, the arrows on the left between the receiver and the comedic information. Before we even come into contact with comedic information, where, whether we read it or hear it or think of it ourselves, whatever, there are already variables at play that will help shape the laugh. Now some of these are going to be like very simple and you're going to go duh and then others get a little more complicated as we go on. Uh, these are the uh, elements of context. For example, our baseline reception factors, we'll call them. That is, who are you coming into this thing? Okay, what is your predisposition? Do you like this kind of humor, that kind of humor? Are you somebody who are, are you, uh, um, how old are you? You know, anything from like your, your heredity to your social status, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, social context. Also, uh, um, I want to say that in baseline reception factors, there's also your health. Are you feeling good? If you're feeling sick, you might not laugh as much as if you're feeling well. Obviously, you're a little drunk, something might be ten times funnier. You're, you're drunk, something might be less funny. All this has nothing to do with the comedic information, but it's going to have a lot to do with whether you think something's funny. So already things are changing based on just who you are. I'll give you a great example of that. My, my wife was once watching the movie Space Jam with her kids, and um, uh, she was watching it at a critical time during her cycle. And at the last scene, when Michael Jordan made that last shot uh, with Bugs Bunny watching, she burst into tears. Okay, so was it that emotional? 
No, not objectively, but she was physically in a place where that was very emotional. The th same thing happens with uh, comedy, which is why when we have uh, uh, you know shoot shows in front of a studio audience, we have a warm-up guy to get people in this crazy mood so they they are more predisposed to enjoy the comedy that is presented formally. Uh, social context that brings me to social context. Obviously, if you're with a group of people, you may be more inclined to laugh at something than if you're just there by yourself. If the source of the comedy is in uh, the room with you, you may be more inclined to laugh socially. Uh, to show approval for whatever reason. So having other people around will change the way you uh, take in comedic material. Uh, a vehicle. A joke, uh, some comedic information, may appear in a man-made uh, construct, a play, a movie, a book, whatever, and your feelings about that particular vehicle will affect the way you react to the jokes within. I've seen jokes that we would have thrown out of the room on Frasier, never used in a million years, on a, in a Broadway play, and people like laugh and applaud because of the way they approach watching a play versus which they, they've, you know, they pay money, they get dressed up, they go out, they make the reservation, it becomes an evening, and everything is amped up. And so something a little more mild will get a huge response as opposed to just basic crap TV that they can turn off or switch or watch in a rerun or whatever. It's free, so you look down on it a little bit. Exact same joke where they go, eh. You know, whatever. If, if, for example, your grandmother makes a joke like that at the kitchen table, you might burst into laughter because it's totally unexpected by her. It's like it's not you. You're aware that writers aren't writing her stuff, and it's you know just amazing that she came up with. So, so a vehicle will affect the way you respond to jokes within. Feelings about the source. This is a, a good one. It's obvious, but it's huge. It's how you feel about the source of the comedy will also determine whether or not you laugh. Very obviously, if someone you hate tells you a joke, you're probably not going to respond the same way you're going to respond if someone you love tells you a joke. Right, I met George Burns once, which is a big thrill of my life, because I was being a big fan of his. And I, I found out that he had an office on the lot where I was working. I was a young writer at the time, and I was so nervous, and I knocked on the door, and some guy ushered me, and I said, <laughs> and it was like, yeah, uh, George is a young writer, wants to meet you. I'll send him in. So I go in, and it's George Burns. And uh, he says, so what do you do? And I say, I, I'm, I'm a writer. And he says, so write something. And I burst into laughter. It was hilarious, you know? And then I, I left. I'm walking back to my office. About halfway back to my office, I thought, that wasn't funny, but I had laughed and I meant it because I loved George Burns. See, so my reaction to that comedic event, my event was meeting George Burns. Okay, it wasn't about the comedic material. It wasn't about whether or not that joke was particularly funny or not funny. You ascribe it to the event. I also give you an anecdote about when I started comedy. This is how analytical I was when I started doing stand-up. I was 19 years old. And I would do, I started off by writing a bunch of jokes. I would write jokes about going to college, which I then got kicked out of. I wrote jokes about my girlfriend or my family or politics or whatever, and I'd group them together by topic, and I would go on stage and do them. And little segues in between the topics. And sometimes I would kill. And then other nights, the exact same thing, I would just kind of die, or I could feel that I just wasn't getting there with them. And I was thinking about what was going on with this, what was going on, and then one day I had this kind of inspiration. I realized what it was. Um, at the time, I, I looked very young for my age. I, I, at 19, I looked like I was 12. And here I was going on stage, and I realized that from the moment an MC says, ladies and gentlemen from Painesville, Ohio, Dan O'Shannon, from that moment to the moment I get to the mic, the audience is trying to decide who I am. And they're starting to decide who I am. And I look like this young kid. If I go and start talking about sex or politics or something where I appear to have no credibility, I'm working against them. Okay? We are at odds. If I start talking, when I would talk about my girlfriend or school, they sort of like come back to me a little bit. So the next week, uh, when it was time to go on stage, what I did was I wore a sweater, sweatshirt that was like a size or two too big for me, and I sort of pitched up the, the, the sort of uh, youthful energy, and I threw out all these sort of worldly jokes. And I went up there, and all excited, and I talked about my girlfriend, and I talked about school. And suddenly jokes that worked this big worked that big. Jokes that had worked that big got applause. What I did, in essence, was I joined my act. Until that moment, I was a delivery system for jokes. I basically said jokes, here's a joke, like, like pull, you know, here's a joke, laugh at that joke or don't laugh at it, here's another one, as though I was invisible. When I became a character, and all these jokes told them about me, and everything I said amped up the jokes, suddenly their feelings for the source were doing, they were fueling everything that was happening. And my actors, and like in two weeks, I started working professionally. And so it's like these little, I, I was very lucky that I, along the way during the career, I had some little moments of inspiration where it's, oh my God, and everything would go to another level. And so I was very lucky. So feelings for the source is huge. I'll talk a little more about that later. You became congruent. Yes, I did. I became congruent with my material. Absolutely. Um, and of course, etc. <laughs> We're talking about comedic information. What constitutes comedic information? Now, now, 
want to talk about that for a minute because when you think about comedy, a joke written on a piece of paper is not comedy any more than a stick of dynamite is an explosion. Okay, that's a pretty important analogy. Uh, because comedy doesn't exist except for the moment that it's happening. Then something comedic is happening. It's, it's this unexploded dynamite, this piece of paper with words on it, isn't comedy yet. Okay, so when we look at structure and we look at, we look at uh, uh, content and that sort of thing, we have to understand that there is no content that always gets a laugh. Also, there is no content that always doesn't get a laugh. There is nothing that is always funny and nothing that is always not funny. Okay? There is no structure, there is no comedic structure where you will say that always works or that never works. Okay, so what is it about comedic structure? Well, what we do, um, there are some structures and some types of information that are more conducive to, in, to getting a laugh than others. The idea is to actually persuade people to laugh because the idea of comedy, comedy is actually a choice made by each and every one of us in nanoseconds when we are confronted with information, okay? And we, we hear this information, we take this information, we decide to make it funny. And sometimes, it, as if it's someone you are purveying comedy, you have to persuade them. That's why you gotta sell the joke, not just tell the joke. You use, often use familiar wordings, familiar structures to let them know, oh, okay, a joke is coming, I will file this under comedy, and then I know whether to, la to laugh at it. I might not find it funny, but I know the intent is comedy. Okay, sometimes we, days later, we look back at something with a different eye, an eye toward, hey, you know what, that thing that I hated that was horrible that made me want to kill myself 10 years ago is really funny now. Okay, you can look at it a little bit differently. That's a safe distance. Anyway, we're going to talk about the two main uh, variables in comedic information. Uh, the first is incongruity. Now, in any comedic information, in fact, any information, you have your receiver. That's the little box on the right. That's you, me, anybody. Um, and you have a setup. Now, by setup, I don't necessarily mean a formal guy walks into a bar. It's just whatever our baseline information we have about the way the world works, the way about whatever topic comes up. It's, it's what we take for normal. Our, li our mental library of normative events, or it is a part of a setup, a guy walks into a bar, whatever. Then there's a second piece of information given by the source, whether intentionally, unintentionally, whatever, that will call the punchline. It's the piece of information that, that puts everything uh, together in a way that, that you can find it incongruous. And we connect those two ideas through a, le a level of cognitive process. Okay, we take uh, what we know and then we take this new information and we understand that it's hugely incongruous or a little incongruous, uh, you know, through a certain amount of mental gymnastics I'll talk about in a moment. And whenever we put these pieces of information, we have, it takes a different, we will find, excuse me, information that results in a different level of incongruity. Okay, some information is not particularly incongruous and some is like crazy, you know. Um, the recognition of incongruity can lead to a visceral response. We can be shocked into laughter by incongruity. And I want to talk about that, but I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about, excuse me, sorry guys. Greek information, play. Sorry guys, I really promise I'm sorry. Okay. As I said, we do this, we do this, we recognize incongruity. Now, why are we shocked into laughter by incongruity? And I think this actually goes back to the way we're built uh, mentally. We are actually hardwired to recognize incongruity. And how is that? Why is that something that we would have in our evolution? Well, if this goes back to pre-language, I mean, imagine us as sort of proto-human beings, all right? And we are living in caves or in forests and trees, wherever the heck we're living, and something out of the ordinary happens. We hear a rustle in the trees where it's not supposed to be, or something thumping over here, a shadow that doesn't belong. It's not something that doesn't belong. We recognize the incongruity. Suddenly, we know that whatever is out there could eat or kill us. Okay, and so what happens? Our hackles raise, our pulses pound, our sweat goes, we're, our, you know, we're like ready to fight, flee, or die. And then it turns out that it was just my own shadow, or it was just a rock falling, or something very safe. And we are flooded with relief. And this flood of relief means we're turning off all those switches that had us on high alert. And it is a physiological rush that we immediately associate with relief, with triumph, with celebration, with superiority, all these things that make up what we you know, call response to comedy. And it is this fantastic relief. And then there are others with us, and we might share this with them, and it could easily result in this kind of, ha, 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 we don't have a language for it. It's just the sound of, are you feeling this too, this amazing thing? It's like, take that shadow on the wall, we didn't get eaten, you know, whatever. As <laughs> a precursor to laughter. Now, how does that turn into comedy today? Well, think of us like evolving for years and years and years. We love that feeling. It is a drug rush. It is only natural that we would find ways to synthesize that feeling. How? By creating comedy, the recognition of safe incongruity. People doing things that are in Congress. They flip these trace switches in us, 
Just this little up and down. Oh, this incongruity. It's a safe incongruity. We're talking about something. Uh, we see the three stooges poking each other, but it's not real. It's a movie. So it's okay. So it's safe incongruity. We can laugh at that. We can laugh at that these people doing these incongruous things. We get this little trace of it, and we're flooded with still the same thing that gives us that rush, that visceral response. Okay, That's half of comedy right there is the visceral reaction to incongruity and then how all these feelings are going to sort of uh, add to that like jet fuel. Now, a visceral response, like I just said. Okay, now, to talk about the, the receiver connecting these ideas of, of, of setup and punchline, it takes different levels of cognitive process. Some jokes are very simple to get. You might have, like, basically, a guy falls down the stairs. And we laugh at that. A dog slips and falls. A dog chases a flashlight beam. A, a baby you know, makes a face. Whatever. It can be very simple. I, I tell you about something that happened at work today. And I don't structure it like any joke where you have to solve a puzzle to get that little bit of incongruity. I just tell you a story that's incongruous. Straightforward information, I call it. Um, it's a low level of cognitive process. Very easy for you to assimilate. Then we have maybe jokes that we start to get into jokes that are structured, jokes that leave out a little bit of information. They're like algebra. You have to solve them, and then you come up with the incongruity. So if you go to a joke type like uh, your mom is so fat when she wears white, they show movies on her. Okay, that kind of structure. Okay, now I could say, hey, you know, your mom is as big as a movie theater. That's straightforward information, not nearly as fun as when she wears white, they show movies in her. Because what you have to do is go, okay, what's as big? And where the, oh, it's a movie screen. Therefore, she is as big as a movie screen. You have to do some cognitive work. Okay, so the jokes start to get more complicated. Then we get to recontextualization, uh, which is basically the old, uh, uh, and I've done zillions of variations on this, but I'm going to go to the oldest one I can think of, which is uh, uh, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I don't know. Okay, so the setup implies that I'm wearing pajamas, but then I say something that makes you recontextualize what I said the first time and find a separate meaning in it. And it makes you go back and go look at it in your life and go, oh, okay, it has a different meaning, and that's the one he meant. So it's kind of like tricking you into that laugh. And that's recontextualization, which is a much higher level of a cognitive process. Now, how does this uh, affect comedy? Recognition, oh, sorry. You'd think I would have done this before. That's the middle one. That's the high one. What's next? I'll tell you. Okay, our recognition of structures and of a complex cognitive process actually results in a uh, appreciative response. Now, I said before there was a, a sort of visceral response to the recognition of incongruity, and this is a cognitive response. But how does that cognitive response come out? In laughter, the same sound that we make when we encounter uh, uh, incongruity. Now, why? Because there are two types of laughter. There is the visceral response, that kind of shocked laughter of incongruity. And then we have a behavioral emoticon. I think what we did as proto-human beings before language is we did something kind of brilliant. We took that sound that we all make, that ha ha ha, because we all knew what it meant. It meant joy, it meant triumph, it meant this fantastic feeling, and there's a very important part of sharing. Okay, and so what we do is we, re we don't have language, and we, re we repurpose that sound to basically mean I mean you no harm. This is great. This is like a cognitive tail wagging. This is a, a literal emoticon, an LOL, basically. I guess it is actually a literal LOL. You know, this is kind of like I'm making that sound we make that we're all happy, so I'm showing recognition of play and approval and that sort of thing. I'm not serious here. This is that great feeling we have. Okay? And what happens is over the years, over the years, it becomes this thing where you will watch people talk in coffee shops or anywhere. And if you listen to what they're saying, there's no actual jokes in there, but people will just throw out these laughs at each other all the time. I do it. Perhaps you do it. I don't want to assume. But perhaps you do. And that's because we are geared toward this kind of recognition. It's like handshaking to show that we're harmless. We do this laughter socially all the time. So we have two types of laughter, and these merge in comedy all the time, especially if we have the source of comedy in the room. When I laughed at George Burns, so much of it was just this appreciation. I love who you are. Laugh, 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 laugh. You did not surprise me viscerally with some crazy comedic idea. No, you said something that indicated a kind of play and a kind of friendliness, and I laughed my head off. It was that second kind of laugh. Now, a different laughter happens all different ways. Sometimes, uh, like, I, I had dinner uh, with this guy, and he told a joke at the end of the night. And uh, he's a smart, we were talking comedy theory a few days later, and I said, that joke you told, why do you think it got such a big laugh? And he starts talking about structure and content and that sort of thing, and he might have been right. But I think the real reason he got the laugh was because his guests had been drinking, it was the end of the evening, he was the host, he held the social power, he was standing by the door, and they were holding their coats. Okay? <laughs> That was laugh. His laugh looked like this. And the thing is, comedy will give you all kinds of different laughs. Laughs where the visceral response is bigger, and there's a little bit of the social response, and then the social response, and a little bit of that. Okay, 
So now we know that, you would think that as comedy writers, we would create triangles over there on the left that had the highest amount of, uh, of incongruity, the highest amount of cognitive process, so we get the biggest laughs all the time. But it doesn't work like that. Thank God. Thank God that comedy is as complicated as it is, or it, things would have stopped being funny hundreds of years ago. There have to be tons of variables all over the place, and there are, thank goodness. So, so we have a joke with a low cognitive process, low incongruity. You'd think we would get a low response. But that's where this next group of variables comes in. This is what we call enhancers and inhibitors. I say we, I, and eventually we when you read the book. We'll call enhancers and inhibitors. Because often the, the content or transmission structure of the joke will trigger, will have components that trigger feelings in you. And those feelings will act like rocket fuel to your response. Okay, so we got a bunch of these things here, like superiority, something in the joke uh, uh, triggers superiority, identification, aggression. These are all very powerful. So you can have a joke that is like sort of a low structure, low cognitive process, low incongruity joke, like Bill Cosby talks about his life, or you know, uh, Ray Romano, those guys, Kathy Griffin, they'll just talk about their lives. They don't do complex structured jokes. They talk about simple things that happen every, happen every day, and you would think that they would get these low responses, but you listen to Kathy Griffin talk about like uh, uh, you know, different celebrities and that sort of thing, you might feel some superiority. Ray Romano talking about his kids or his wife, whatever, to feel some of that. Identification is huge. It puts you in the comedy. The less incongruent something is, the more you relate to it. The more you relate to it, the more you identify with it, the more you might laugh at it. It's a bit of a paradox. Forget uh, aggression, relief, shock, disgust. That's all content-based, but you might have appreciation for the performance. Well-told joke, well-acted comedy. Then you've got from before the feelings about the so uh, source, the social context you're in, and suddenly you have this very low-structured joke where if you were just looking at structure, you would say, well, that's not a very good joke. But if you're looking at the event and all the triggers, you have a huge response. And so if you know how to manipulate those, you can write like tons of variations of jokes and scenes all over the place and always go for something a little bit different and get different kinds of laughs all over the place. Now I'll give you one more set of variables, then we'll be done. I'll take questions and answers. You can all go home. It's going to be great. Okay. Okay. Guess what? There are more variables because comedy, thank God, is more complex than this. And they are aspects of awareness because we don't just experience the joke as a joke. Now, remember I told you the joke before about uh, Mr. Jo uh, Doctor, uh, Mr. Jones and the doctor, and he's talking to him, and, okay, in that reality, in the joke's reality, there is a doctor and there is Mr. Jones. There is masturbation and there is probably a waiting room. There is not me and a bookstore in you, okay? But in that joke's reality, you are aware of that and you might have a response to that situation. I end up giving you a joke that has some incongruity. You respond to the incongruity, perhaps. You are also aware of the joke of the, as a joke. You compare it to other jokes you've heard. If you've heard it before, that might be an inhibitor. You might like or not like my performance of the joke. You are aware that this is a joke, and that will also affect your response. The joke's impact on its context. Okay, this is uh, kind of interesting. If you watch like an insult comedian and he's just bashing somebody in the audience, that might do all kinds of things to you as another member of the audience. It might raise feelings of superiority against that guy and you get to be this kind of mean laugh and kind of like you get out aggression that's kind of safe because it's just a comedy club, but you get this kind of aggression out and that fuels your laugh. You may feel identification with the guy who's being laughed at and feel more inhibited. An inhibitor can also be an enhancer. You know, some people love like aggressive humor. Some people, they cringe at it. You know, I used to like watching The Honeymooners by wife hated it because Ralph Cranlin was so aggressive and it triggered stuff in her. So that very same aggression, an inhibitor to her and enhancer to me. Okay. Um, okay. Um, oh, one more thing about jokes impact on context. I'll give you a great example. Is A few years ago, uh, Stephen Colbert did the uh, president's, uh, the, the press corps dinner in Washington and he told all these jokes about George W. Bush. And I thought they were really great jokes. But the audience, if you watch it on video, audience not responding huge to it. And I believe the reason is not because they didn't appreciate how great the jokes were, but partially because George W. Bush was sitting five feet away. And so they are, their laugh is actually based on their knowledge that this joke is having an impact on him. Okay, it's affecting the context and it's affecting their laugh. Now a couple years later, well the next year, um, Obama was talking at the same dinner and made jokes about Donald Trump who was in the room and the place went nuts laughing because no one was afraid of uh, actually insulting Donald Trump. In fact, I think they enjoyed it. So there was a lot of aggression fueling the laughs. So the jokes weren't even that great, but huge laughs because of the aggression, because of the en enhancers uh, uh, as far as its impact on the context. Okay, and the last one, uh, receivers' relation to other receivers' responses. 
Okay, we are not only aware that we are receiving comedy, we are aware when there is an, a larger audience that the other members of the audience are receiving it. And we are gauging our response with theirs. We are constantly measuring ourselves against other people, which is brought up quite a lot in here when we talk about superiority identification. And one of them is in the way we respond to comedy. Now on TV, often we will have a joke where we go, well, like 10% of the audience will get that. But we also know that 10% of the audience will laugh 10 times harder if every now and again we give the 10% of the audience the joke. Well, why is that? Because they are aware that they are part of a small group that has an in with the source who holds the social power. It's like we get this and but we're also aware that other people aren't getting it. So we have superiority over the other people. We get to exclude them and we have inclusion with the source. I'm not too proud to admit that there have been times when I've gotten a smart joke a split second before someone else and I laugh a little extra loud to let them know that I got it first. <laughs> this happens a lot. You know what? The rest of the audience doesn't even have to be present for this. Okay, so if I'm like watching TV by myself and I see a joke that I myself find funny and I laugh at, but let's say I'm aware that kids are watching this and this is kind of an adult joke, it might dampen my response to it because I'm aware this might not be appropriate for other people who I can't even see. So I'm not only judging my laugh against people who are with me, but people who I'm aware are seeing it. Okay, so this basically gives you the, the gist. I, I think that's kind of enough for now, but um, I'll leave, leave that up there. But um, me? Oh no 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 no! I breathe when I get home. Um, like uh, here we have. Uh, here's an example. We got uh, Lucy who has built, uh, who has baked, uh, I guess bread or cake, and uh, she's done something horribly wrong because it's expanded about eight feet and pinned her against the counter. Nothing phallic there. And um, <laughs> what I particularly love is the tray underneath is somehow also amazingly grown eight feet. Um, anyway, so so what is it that perhaps people might be laughing at that? Well, uh, if you look at uh, we have basically it takes low cognitive process to see what's happening and understand it, and it's a but it is a a, a joke of uh, pretty much high income because it's impossible. Through the joke's internal reality, we might have these feelings triggered, which then will, will affect our response. Uh, we are aware of the joke of the joke. We may have appreciation for the performance of Lucille Ball. We might be inhibited by the fact that we've seen it 10 times before. We might be inhibited by the fact that, that it reminds us of somebody who is a horrible cook and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, and that all leads to the response. So uh, when you're making any kind of joke, when you're doing any kind of, uh, kind of thinking about what's making me laugh, what's making other people laugh, don't just look at the structure and content of a joke. Look at the whole event because you might find the answer outside the actual information. And that's really the gist of this book is to go through all these variables and talk about experiences I've had with, with some of these jokes, experiences that I know other people have had, and to talk about how each of these can impact and be the dominant factor in any laugh. Now before I stop this and ask questions, I'll go back to Mary Tyler Moore for a second. Uh, as you'll recall, she and Lou Grant were uh, leaning in for an awkward kiss. They start to laugh. Loud shriek of laughter from the studio audience, sudden taper. Any idea what would cause a laugh like that? I'll take a guess from anyone. Uh, but I'll, I'll, so good. Go ahead, what's that? I've read the book. You've read the book, you know. You want it so much to happen. You do indeed want it so much to happen. But the, uh, and so, the, so, so are we saying that, that they're enjoying it, but they're disappointed because they wanted it to actually go into a kiss? Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's very, that's, and that's based on how we feel about what we're seeing. But um, I'll go uh, one further. Uh, the studio audience is having a different comedic event than we are. We are watching a filmed uh, a TV show in our living rooms, presumably, or wherever we have a TV. Okay, this is different from the studio audience. They're watching a filmed play. They're watching live people. And these people are doing a scene and they start laughing. And the studio audience thinks, they've forgotten their lines. We're seeing a blooper. A loud shriek of laughter, but the scene keeps going. So they have to shut back up to get into the scene again. Okay. Now, at home, watching it on TV, especially as a teenager, it would have never occurred to me because they don't show bloopers as part of the show. That doesn't happen on a formally packaged sitcom. But if you're in the audience, if you're in a studio audience watching this thing get filmed, people, actors make mistakes and you laugh and laugh and laugh. And then you go, oh, it's not a mistake at all. I made the mistake. And that's what's happening in those laughs, I believe. Um, so again, that it has nothing to do with content or structure, but the comedic event. Those people laughing were in a different place and time than I am laughing at later. So there's no guarantee that we're going to have the same response. So it's all about what's triggering those responses, and that's what this whole book is about. And I'll take any questions about anything. It doesn't even have to be a comedy. My life. Hey, I skipped therapy today. I'll talk about anything. So, <laughs> well, let's thank you. I see a question in the back already. Thank you. Somebody, um, I had an inappropriate laughter one time. I walked out with my sister in the night in the forest, and there was dogs, and I, I kept laughing. So I couldn't figure out what is the reason for laughing instead of just being totally 
totally scared. We were totally scared. Why that? I can I can only guess. I mean, I can't tell you what's in your head, but I can tell you why that could happen. And what that is is if sometimes, in order to laugh at incongruity, I talked about safe incongruity a lot. The idea that you have to make incongruity safe in order to laugh at it. It's just a shadow. It's just a whatever. It's not a cougar trying to kill you or whatever. Um, and sometimes laughter is created by seeing something on screen. We know it's not really here. We know the three stooges aren't really hurting each other. Sometimes uh, distance in time is the thing that makes information uh, safe. Those things that threatened me and hurt me so much as a kid, I can now look back at and laugh. I can let make a joke about Lincoln because that was a long time ago. You know, so, so, so what happens is sometimes we are confronted with information that is very shocking. Like for example, when you hear about the death of someone close to you and, and or you are terrified of something. And what will happen is the brain doesn't want to deal with it at, on its own level. It's too shocking, it's too scary. And so I will make it safe by basically creating a distance and I will put that in the comedy file in my head and I will laugh at it. If you've ever seen this happen, which is a very strange thing to see when you have to say to somebody, you know, yeah, I'm afraid your grandmother died and they burst out laughing. I've actually seen this, it's an odd thing, but it's the information is almost like too big to fit and too threatening and too scary. And so they turn it into this can't be real. And if it can't be real, then it must be nonsense. If it's nonsense, it must be funny and I laugh. You're very welcome. You still have to buy the book. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, occasionally I've thought of this because I like really good horror movies, uh, but I, I just haven't ever gotten around. Now that I'm done with this, maybe I can. But uh, no, I, I, I like them. And I've also noticed that not only is there good comedy in a lot of good horror movies, but a lot of times when people are startled in a movie, they'll be startled and then turn to each other and laugh. And it's that very same thing I'm talking about, that very primitive thing. Like when we, there's something scary out there, but then it's okay. It's like, okay, it's not a real thing. Okay, I'm in a movie theater, but I did get startled. All those hackles got raised and we turn and share it with somebody and we laugh. And so I, it's, it's kind of interesting to see that happen like in the 21st century, this very sort of primitive behavior. But uh, to answer your question, I, I've thought about, if I come up with a great idea, I will. But I, I hope I do, but uh, so far I haven't. Yes? Uh, you said that at the beginning that you were a kid wasn't funny and right. decided that you wanted to learn how to be funny. Right. Since you've, you've done that and learned about funny, but how did you go about learning how to be funny? How did I, how did, the question is, uh, I was not born funny, as I said before. How did I go about learning to be funny? I think uh, a lot of it was watching. A lot of it was, at uh, first, the things that anyone does as a kid, you imitate those things. It's like, it's like an artist. I mean, it's like artists often start by having a style that's very much like someone they admire, and then they slowly develop their own style as their own heart and soul gets expressed as they start to learn the tricks of the trade. Um, I think it's, so you start from like kind of writing from the outside, writing things that are shaped like jokes, writing, you know, jokes that, you know, like, like my act. I, I wrote from the outside. I didn't write from a specific point of view. I just wrote jokes. And so I hit a ceiling. I was kind of limited. It had to have that breakthrough of writing from the inside. Um, and so I, I think little steps like that, starting from imitation, starting to kind of uh, create my own jokes. And sometimes they would work and sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes I think, I, I sometimes, I remember like in high school, I'd get on a roll and people would be like dying laughing. And I would go home thinking, I got it. I'm funny now. And then like two days later, I'd go out and try to be funny. Nothing. And I would just, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And it's like every day I was judging myself on every single laugh or not laugh I got, which was just, just horrific. Um, but um, I mean, even like, you know, it's still, I'm, I'm not too old to keep learning lessons along the way, I hope. But, uh, but one of, a big lesson I learned when I was writing TV, when I was back on Cheers, I think even then I was just writing funny. You know, I'd write the story and the story structure and everything was funny and I'd hand it in and it would do fine. Um, but I, I started going to therapy around that time and I was actually kind of afraid of going to therapy because I thought if I go to therapy, what if they iron out all the things that, that are messed up in me that make me funny and then I won't be funny anymore? I was actually very nervous about this. And I went to therapy and the result was, uh, it didn't stop me from being funny, but it made me a writer. Because I began to understand that the reasons I was doing things behaviorally, the reasons I was in the kind of relationships I was in, the, the fears or this or that, had these really deep internal reasons that were not being externalized, that I had a subtext. And as I learned more about that, and I was writing these characters, and it was Cheers was when I really started to go through this, I started feeling that these characters that I was writing, I was not just moving them around from funny line to funny line. I mean, I was, but I was also, I was starting to understand their intentions, the characters' motivations, what was on underneath that they weren't expressing. 
And so I got to write more sort of psychological jokes for them. There was one joke, I don't know if you know the show, uh, there's a, a character named Cliff, he's a mailman, he lives with his mom, he's a you know, know-it-all. And I wrote a line for him where he says, uh, he's explaining what a Freudian slip is, and he says, a Freudian slip is when you say one thing but you're thinking about a mother. And, um, <laughs> and it's like, it's a joke, but it's a joke that gives you a little window into who he is, you see. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, these characters do not wake up every day going, I'm going to be funny. They sincerely believe in who they are and what they're doing. And I have to respect that when I write them. I often see scripts from people who are just starting out and I say, why is this scene here or why is this dialogue here? And they say, because it's funny. Yeah, well, the character's trying to be funny. No, the characters have to believe in who they are and what they're doing. Um, and so uh, uh, that, that's something that I, I learned sort of as an adult to write from the inside. So as I say, it's sort of all these little breakthroughs uh, came along. And uh, you know, and I'm also just by nature just very analytical, uh, just trying desperately to understand. And also I know about myself, I'll go into a little psychology here, is that I was a very lonely kid. And I did have kind of a bad childhood in my home. And I felt like I wasn't fitting in with anything. So I think the idea of making people laugh was uh, geared toward being accepted by other people. So I, desperate, I had a desperate need for that. So it wasn't just like, I'll be funny. Underneath, and I wasn't aware of it as a kid, was my wanting people to like me. And, um, and so uh, now I understand that motivation back then. So, so I, I had a, a need to do it that perhaps a lot of people didn't have. I don't know. Um, so that, that's in a nutshell is kind of in a vague way how I, how I did that. So, yes? How do you determine um, how much cognitive process you require from your audience over the course of a you know, half-hour show. What's the graph of that? Uh, well, you know, it's it's always different, and and it's kind of like, um, you know, like Leslie, any you watch any TV show, and you'll you'll see if you sort of like start to take apart the jokes, you'll find that there's a huge mishmash. Like in, in Modern Family, there's a lot of wordplay. I, I tend to be a sucker for wordplay. It's not all I do, believe me, but I kind of like it. And so I, I like I put in. I'll just give you an example of a wordplay joke I did for Modern Family. It's kind of I can't believe it got in to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> Cam, if you know the show, Cam um, is uh, directing the school play for these little kids and Mitch is saying you're overdoing it you're taxing these kids stop it and and Cam is saying you know what before I came here they didn't know anything about the theater they did not know about Cole Porter they did not know about Stephen Sondheim they did not know about anything but one day they're all gonna remember the day I came to their school and Sondheimized them <laughs> and, uh, and I I pitched that just to make the other writers laugh. And they were saying, we got to put that in. I said, that's not going to go away. There's no way. That's gonna... And it got in. But, but does that mean every joke is, is wordplay or that kind of thing where you go, Sondheim, oh, that's what... Uh, no, no, that kind of joke usually gets an appreciative laugh like that. Because a joke like that is really a card trick in a way. It's like a little card trick with language. And the laughter is actually this more sort of appreciative than kind of visceral response like we talk about. Other times on Modern Family, someone falls down, Phil might fall down spectacularly or something. And that gets this gut visceral response. We have jokes that are very small structured and very large structured. And, and every variation. And then we try to, to, and we don't consciously try. By the way, none of the writers, including myself, think about this stuff while we're writing. It's more instinctive. Uh, but we are basically plucking it different. Sometimes we do those jokes only a few people will get because we know we'll get that kind of laugh. Or sometimes we do a, a joke that's going to trigger this kind of feeling or that kind of feeling. So if you were, so there's no set graph for any half hour of TV. A good TV show will throw every kind of joke out there and keep mixing it up. Because if you had a joke, and I've seen stand-up acts like this, where the stand-up will, will land on a certain kind of joke structure and then every joke is that same kind of structure and you start to see through the structure through the joke to the structure pretty quickly and it gets old so you need to mix up sometimes it's easy so bless you sometimes it's a little more difficult you know whatever and and we we really try to mix up is the sh is the short answer to a very long statement i'm making so um yes you have a theory about things that um, aren't meant to be funny that become really unintentionally funny mm -hmm. like uh, sounds of the lambs yeah uh, well, I talk about like meta comedy, and I talk about the idea of ironic comedy and that sort of thing. And what we do is when we're laughing, which oh, <laughs> um, it's kind of like what we do there. Like for example, let's talk about comedy that uh, first of all that gets ironic laughter. That is jokes that are so bad they're good. Okay, um, and why are those funny? What is the setup? What is the punchline? Well, the setup really is our knowledge of how jokes usually work, of how comedy usually works. And then we throw on top of that this very bad comedy. And we see the difference there. And we know that this intended to be that. And we will laugh at it. But our setup actually is our knowledge of comedy. John Cleese talked about something like this uh, in Monty Python. He was talking about Michael Palin. He says the rest of us would write these really complicated sketches with this and that and this. And then Michael Palin would just do a little film bit of a guy walking up to a river and throwing himself in. And then getting out and throwing himself in again. And we would just scratch our heads going, why was this funny? We never understood why it was funny, but we kept laughing. <laughs> well, I, I, would, I would look at it and I'd go, I think there are two basic reasons why we laugh. Now, there might be all these other subterranean 
reasons, but I've got two basic ones. One is that it's incongruous behavior. It's absolutely unmotivated, which is incongruous. The people, someone would keep doing this over and over. The second is that we are watching the rest of Monty Python, and we're looking at comedy structured in a familiar way, that they have these complicated setups, and so we know what comedy is. And then we see somebody doing totally unmotivated action that doesn't rely on complicated setups and this and that, and so our knowledge of comedy is our base. And then we have this comedy that doesn't fit and so it's incongruous as comedy. So it's a second layer of laughter. Um, we also, I mean, I also talk about like why things get funnier and funnier and funnier and then less funny. And I've got some examples from Cheers and, and stuff in that that we did. Uh, as far as like looking at something that that and laughing at it like Silence of the Lambs, the only thing I can perhaps suggest there, and I, again, I can't say this is why we. I kind of stay away from this, and, the, and I talk about the variables, and this is a possible reason why we. Um, it's the same reason people can like laugh. I think like at the Holocaust, and what I'm I'm not saying do not mistake me as saying the Holocaust is funny, but do people make jokes about it? Yes, they do every day. How is it possible for human beings to laugh at that? And it goes back to those dogs that you were talking about. We make it safe in our head. We create a distance psychologically. We do not think of them as real human beings who went through horrible torture and had horrible lives. It's almost so big what happened and so horrible that sometimes we cannot put the whole picture of what that is in our heads and we have to render it safe in order to fix it. And if, it's, if, it, if it doesn't make sense, it's nonsense and that it allows us to laugh at how big it is. Or we laugh at the idea that someone would laugh at it. Okay, like I want to shock you, I'll make a joke about the Holocaust. Are you laughing at the Holocaust or you're laughing at the guy who is so insensitive that he would make a joke about it? And so there are different ways to find a safe avenue to make a joke about anything. Okay, um, anyway, there, there's a lot more about that in this thing, but that's kind of the gist. Can you talk about the pairing, I guess, of, of material with, say, an, an actor? I'm assuming, like, with, with Modern Family, I'm assuming you're there for the, for the casting process. You must have seen a lot of actors yeah. say your words. So yeah. I guess, you know, um, you know, what is it? It's like, oh, this guy's perfect for this role, you know, in addition to just having their great timing. Yeah. Um, well, it's uh, kind of, we, we, like, for example, in Modern Family, they, they knew that they wanted Phil Dunphy to be Ty Burrell. I mean, they knew that from the beginning, and the network even said, you know, we don't like this guy, he's not a star, whatever, don't do it. And then the creators of the show actually filmed him doing, like, a scene kind of on spec, and they showed it to ABC, and they said, okay, fine, do it. Um, there were actors that the network was against, and there were actors that... Uh, these, these guys all came in and read and they were great. Some of them were just lucky because other people said no. And it, we, it, it was an insane amount of luck. I mean, obviously we have a terrific casting director and we have great producers and everyone was able to pick the right people. That does not always happen. In this case, it totally did. Um, and what happens on a lot of shows, and I'll give you a great example, is Kirstie Alley on Cheers. Is you will write a certain kind of character. When Kirstie Alley started on Cheers, she was supposed to be this kind of put together ice queen. And this, this kind of person who that Sam could not get through to, that she's going to be really tough and everyone was going to hate her. And we did a few episodes where she was like that and it just wasn't clicking. And then there was a scene where she had to go into her office and cry. And, and nobody cries funny like Kirstie Alley, but we didn't know that. And she cried and suddenly we felt things for her. And our feelings of sympathy, our feelings of, oh my God, this is a real person and she cries funny, those enhancers. You know, we felt something for her and it, it was ro rocket fuel to the response. So we started writing to her insecurities. And, and, and so what happens is the, the writers and actors become custodians of the character. They become co-parents of the character. We find what the actors could do. Ted Danson could eat funny like nobody and Kirstie Alley could cry funny like nobody. And a lot of people can't cry funny because they'll cry real. Real actors will cry in a way that'll make you want to cry. But who cries in a way that makes you want to laugh? You know, Kelsey Grammer was that way too. He could give you every emotion there was, give it to you so you would swear he was feeling those things. But instead of wanting to cry for him or die for him, you would laugh. He was great. He was great to write on Cheers because he was full of, you know, we talked about subtext earlier. He was a guy, I mean, Cliff was what he was, and he was funny. But in many of the characters, they were what they were, and they were funny. Frazier came in with levels. He looked down on everybody, but he couldn't quite leave, because underneath, he wanted to belong. And suddenly, and, and right around this time, I'd stop, Cliff had been my favorite to write for when I started Cheers, and by the end, it was just Frazier, 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 Frazier. I loved that he just couldn't, he wanted their approval so much, even as he looked down on them. And there was something so sad and heartbreaking underneath that and sort of hilarious, and something I keyed in with. That I, I mean, I loved writing for him because of that. So that was a, 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 just a, a brilliant piece of luck with casting and material. You know, and, and unexpected. You just don't know which actors are going to connect with which material all the time. So, long answer again, sorry. <laughs> Anything else? We good? Oh, no, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll start in the left. Well, actually, we'll go to you and you'll be the last question. Okay. Oh, I make it good. Okay, go ahead. It's <laughs> so the last question. This wraps up everything. Less pressure, less pressure. <laughs>
Uh, Second last, even twice as important. Go ahead. Oh no, no, no. Um, is, is there, have there been, how do you, how do you, how can you tell when a joke will work on the page versus in performance? Oh, uh, well, I think uh, as far as working on the page, I mean, it comes down to did it make me laugh? You know, because again, I do not think of things in terms of theory while I'm writing. It's almost like, it's almost like I, I've said this because people ask me, you know, does, does it take all the fun out of comedy or whatever to, to have gone through all this? And the answer is no, because I don't really think about this stuff while I'm writing. I'll just write something that kind of makes me laugh or just feels right to me. I've been doing TV for 30 years, so um, it really, in a way, just has to feel right. And I can just kind of feel it or it just makes me feel funny or happy or whatever. That doesn't mean it's going to work on stage. There have been jokes that I wrote on the page that I thought, oh, this is terrific. And then I see it on stage and either the actor has a different way of doing it or maybe the camera was in the place where it didn't really do well. Or maybe, worst of all, it wasn't as funny as I thought it was. <laughs> and uh, I am quite fallible. And I will admit to that. There are times I think, oh, this is the joke. And there have been times I, <laughs> you know, all of us have, and Ken Levine talks about this a lot. Um, there have been times that you'll be in a, a room and you think you have a good joke and you pitch it and it gets nothing. And, and a lot of times, um, certainly back when I was doing it, like I'll go back to Cheers, uh, sometimes if a writer really did that and kind of bombed, they would have some kind of way to sort of like make a joke. Like Johnny Carson used to make jokes about how bad the jokes were just to sort of save themselves. And there was one I used to do, especially because sometimes I'd pitch a really long bit and it would take forever to pitch and everyone's looking at me kind of like, uh-huh, this better be good, this better, and I'd come to the end of it. Nothing. And, and I would sort of pretend to kind of wake up or I'd look around and say, was that out loud? Did I say that out loud? And then one day we thought, you know, we should give that to Cliff. And we had him tell this long thing and everyone looks at me and says, did I say that out loud? And the next year, two of our writers had gone on to different shows and they gave it to two more characters. And then other writers on other shows started doing it. And then I started hearing it in real life. You know, and then it was kind of like, I should get a quarter every time someone says that. And then I had, I, I, you owe me a quarter. I, uh, I met, I had a, uh, a lunch one time with Sam Raimi, who was about to direct Spider-Man. He was in pre-production. And he said, did I say that out loud? And I told him the story. And I said, that came from me. And I said, I feel like I should get a quarter anytime anyone says that. And he laughed. Then months later, I go and see Spider-Man. And there's a line where J. Jonah Jameson is talking about the Green Goblin. He says, we'll call him the Green Goblin. Copyright that name. I want a quarter anytime anyone says it. I go, <laughs> that's my line about my line. <laughs> So, uh, last question. Yeah. Uh, I know after the uh, Republican convention, uh, Bill Maher was talking about Clint Eastwood's uh -huh. talk. And uh, he said, you know, politics aside, like, you have to give him credit because he got laughs consistently. And Jason Alexander was there and said, you know, uh, what well, I learned when I was on Seinfeld that by the end we could have done anything. And, like, Jerry said this as well, like, we can do anything and we'll get laughs. They're on your side. The audience is yeah. on your side. And uh, Bill Maher just kind of shot him down and said, no, you're, you know, I'm a stand-up. I know you get five minutes of good faith if you're lucky, and that's it. And I was very torn on what I actually felt, because I, I don't, you know, I wanted to want to get insight. Uh my feeling when you first said that, I, my initial response was I'm on Jason Alexander's side because I was at Cheers the last four years, and by the last year they were rock stars, and we had parades in Boston, and I went to some one of those, and um, and by the end they were all being sought out for movies, and there were big celebrations because Cheers was ending, and we're having a Cheers reunion this weekend for the first time in 30 years. It's pretty cool, but um, um, come on, you should all come, uh, but. Um, <laughs> Um, but by the end, like I say, they were all rock stars, and they, <laughs> toward the end, were all so busy partying, they didn't learn their lines a lot. And so what would happen is they'd go out, and we'd shoot the first scene, and they'd come out, and after two lines, one of them would mess up or start cracking up the audience shriek of laughter, but it would stay there because it really was a blooper. And then, um, and then they'd go do it again, take two, and then another one would mess up because they hadn't memorized these things. And the audience laughs, but not quite as loud this time. And then you get to the point where the audience is like kind of looking at their watch, and then they mess up again. The audience members are shouting out the lines at this point. You know, just says, get it! Um, but uh, there is such a thing as, I think, someone being too loved uh, to the point where the laughs aren't real. And to me, uh, there's a great example in sitcoms. Uh, one episode that I would look at entirely, uh, that would be the episode of Ellen in which she came out. Uh, if you watch that episode and you listen to the studio audience, the laughs are not based on the size of the joke, I would think, but by the fact that this woman is coming out on national TV. And the audience is so pro coming out that it is a rally. And so audiences are just applauding and shrieking and yelling. And so to me, it's kind of, it's good, but it's an imbalance to me. I have a trouble watching David Letterman for the same reason. If you watch David Letterman, 
Every joke gets uh, tiny jokes. We'll just get this huge laugh, and then the Jordan, you know, Paul Schaefer plays a little thing, and then there's more, and then applause, and then on to the next very mild joke that a 10-year-old could write, and then everything <laughs> happens again. Um, and then you watch Letterman host the Oscars, where it's not his crowd. And he does okay, but the jokes, the laughs are actually kind of appropriate to the jokes. And he got some good laughs, but it wasn't the kind of like, we love you rock fest that it is on his show. And that's why I can't watch that show, is because it's, it seems stacked, it's fake. Those laughs aren't real. Um, I mean, they are for their event. Those people are hyped up, and for all I know, the warm-up gives them cocaine before each show. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so to them, that's very genuine. To me, it's not. It's, and it's too distant, it's too far apart from what I'm experiencing for me to enjoy it. Now, I know a studio audience watching a TV show, uh, like a multicam or Bill Maher, Daily Show, whatever, they're going to laugh harder than I am in the living room because they're also, they're also sharing this laughter with other people who are excited to be watching a show. They're sharing their laughter with the performers. And often laughter will slide into applause. And it's basically because it, it is, we appreciate you, we love you. I do not have those enhancers in my living room, so I will less laugh less at the studio audience. But I'm also uh, sort of okay with, I, I've learned, like all of us have, that that disconnect is okay. That I don't have to laugh as hard as them, but it's all real. When, when it gets to be too different from what I'm experiencing, like those, those crazy Letterman laughs, to me that becomes uncomfortable. But I, I think toward the end of Seinfeld, I would agree, they could do no wrong. I, I think the end of Cheers, I, I think sometimes a little bit modern family, that there are times that we kind of skate by the episodes that aren't that great, and they skate by on this love for, that people have for the show. Which, by the way, I think is kind of okay that people love the show, and they love it from week to week, whether we're good or bad, but, uh, but it's, uh, I think it can be too much sometimes. It gives you a false sense of what's funny and what's not. So, thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.